Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show uh, once again for you. Uh, we're going to be starting things off here in just a moment uh, with another uh, discussion on the Coach's Corner panel. I'll introduce the guys here in just a moment. And a little bit later on, I'll be joined by my uh, this evening's interview guest, Ed Brockner. He's the Vice uh, President of the uh, Western, uh, or sorry, the region, East Region Development uh, for the Western Golf Association and the Evans Scholars Foundation. He'll be joining me uh, to talk about some of the things that he's doing on the East Coast of the United States uh, with the WGA and the Evans Scholars Foundation. So we'll talk to him a little bit later on the show. But let me introduce the guys. Uh, first up, of course, is John Hughes. He's the uh, PGA Master Professional and Honorary President of the North Florida's PGA Section. Uh, he was also the recipient of the 2013 PGA of America's Horton Smith Award. Uh, he's also a senior editor and a Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor, plus a part of the Golf Tips Advisory staff. Uh, he'll be joining tonight with, uh, by excuse me, uh, Clint Wright. He's a 30-year-plus uh, member of the PGA and one of uh, the partners at TGM Golf. And TGM Golf, of course, is a big proponent of the R3 approach, which we've talked about here. And I consider him to be uh, among one of the best covering the short game uh, and a favorite guest here, of course, uh, along with John on the Coach's Corner panel. So, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner, and thank you, as always, for joining me. Glad to be with you, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right, I appreciate it, guys. All right, so we're going to kind of cover a couple of categories. I thought we'd do something we haven't really done a lot of here in, in quite some time. Uh, the first component, we're going to talk about some common issues that uh, some golfers uh, face out there, especially our, our higher handicap golfers. And I just thought... As we're getting close to the end of a season here, pretty soon, a few more shows, and, and we'll be wrapping up for another uh, season, and we'll be moving into Season 11 next year, I thought we'd have some fun uh, discussion on some common uh, problems that people might be faced with out in the golf course, and then also a couple of uh, equipment questions as well that uh, I think people might uh, be able to learn some stuff from. So I'm going to go, uh, uh, Clint, with you first, if you don't mind, and then, uh, John, I'll, I'll come to you. Um, and... and we're going to start, as I said, with some of the common issues that a golfer might find him or herself out in the golf course. And one that we see a lot, um, especially, again, with our high-handicap golfers, is the dreaded top shot. Um, we see that quite a bit where they just sort of hit the, and it just sort of rolls along, doesn't go very far typically, uh, mm-hmm. but they top the ball. Talk about what, what the cause is and what do we do to fix that. What, what's going on here that's causing golfers to top their shots? And how do we make changes? And I know we don't have visual here, but uh, right, basically right. explain it as best as you can. 
Well, in, in reality, the, um, what's causing them to top the ball is the center or the bottom of their swing is moving. Okay, mm-hmm. they they set up on the ball, put the club behind it. They're they're trying to establish a bottom of their swing, and if the center of their body or their spine angle changes or they move it sideways, then the bottom of their swing has moved along with that center. Now, so there are a number of things that that could be causing it to move. They they could be, you know, swaying is a common problem mm-hmm. we've all talked about for years. Uh, they could mm-hmm. be losing their spine angle. Um, uh, which is very common, I, I think, amongst players, particularly higher handicap and maybe some of our senior players that uh, just can't quite keep that angle all the way through the swing. As, as the swing increases speed, they tend to want to rise up out of that, and that's going to change the bottom, which obviously raises it up, which at that point comes over the top of the ball. So the cause of it could be multiple things, but the the real issue is the bottom of their swing or the center of their swing is moving. And then, you know, if if they've got a good professional they can go to and they can get that on video and discuss how they want to stabilize that, then that that should help them not top the ball, obviously, as many times as they might. But but obviously, if they can find a way to uh, identify why it's not stable, work with their local pro to to work on some drills and some things to help them stabilize the bottom or the center of their swing, that, that should help eliminate the top shot for sure. Yeah, and and I think, too, you know, again, a lot of times, like you said, there's a lot of swing that goes on we see, or, uh, again, in the case of our senior golfers, a lot of times they're not able to maintain that spine angle. They're coming out of their posture, and uh, a lot of things can happen. That just happens to be one shot that, um, we quite often see uh, with, with some of our golfers out there. And this is something that you see a lot. You see it out in the range sometimes, too. You'll see some people hit, hitting some pretty good shots, and all of a sudden they'll top one, and you're going to think, wow, he just you know hit two or three good shots. What's going on here? And a lot of times either they're starting to sway in that uh, swing a little bit more than what needs to be, uh, or they're coming out of posture somewhat. So um, definitely a, a shot that uh, most people don't want to have in their bag for sure and uh, yeah. definitely need to go on and have that looked at. Um, John, I'm going to come to you, and this is obviously a very similar um, point here, but um, you know, we see a lot of the, the golfers, especially with the driver, we'll see them hitting the old worm burner uh, where it gets out there sometimes a, a few yards, certainly more than just a typical top shot. Um, that's another one that can also be common. Um, goes a long way sometimes, but doesn't get very much height. So what's going on here? Uh, is this something similar to the top shot? Is this something a little bit different? And what adjustments do we need to make, or what do we need to make sure? And if you want to use the drivers as probably one of the best examples, uh, that's fine as well. Yeah, that, great question, Ted. And, Clint, glad to hear from you. Uh, glad to be back on the show, and thanks, Ted, for the opportunity. Cause similar to Clint's answer with the top shot with the iron, your your worm burner with the driver is going to be very similar in nature and characteristics. But the other thing that comes into mind is when you're attempting to hit up on the ball and you're really not due to a setup position or a little bit over the top kind of swing outside the end, you could be hitting the top of the ball, but actually on the way down. So mm-hmm. there's there's a couple of different reasons why you could hit that worm burner. Uh, The best worm burner there is is the one that goes straight 
and does mm-hmm. have some air time. You have to look at that and say, I just squared the golf, but where on the golf right. club did I hit it? Probably hit it pretty low. Probably, possibly, I'll give you some credit here, possibly could have been hitting it on the upswing. But you've got to make some adjustments to ball position, the distance you're standing from the ball with the driver. And then realize to hit up on the ball does not mean that the club goes to the left of you for the right-handed player as you swing mm-hmm. through. Got to go the opposite way. For you to swing up and get some air time there, that club's got to swing outwards as if you were the club and the toe of the club were chasing the ball out to right center field a little bit. And what you got to guard against is getting your hands in front of you there. That's a totally different subject. But if you can get your hands out in front of you hit up, you're not going to hit that worm burner longer right and 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 typically john let me just sort of follow up on this is is it typically more of a setup issue that's causing this um you know uh, again vis-a-vis ball position typically maybe it's a little bit further forward than it what it needs to be uh again in the case of the driver or is it uh, more often than not when you're seeing this happen to to your students is it an issue of they're not um they're not swinging properly. In other words, is it more position and in their setup, or is it a problem with the way that they're actually swinging? In case of what uh, Clint talked about, where there's getting a lot of swaying going on in their swing. What, what typically do you see uh, more often on the on the I tee? I would call it I would call it a toss up between handicap zones. Okay. I would say from a 15, 14, 15 and up, it's typically set up. There is some swing issues, but you're only going to swing as well as you set up. By the time you're starting to improve your golf, your scores, your handicap, you're improving your skills, you're improving your setup, that's when I see the other side of the coin being flipped to it's a swing issue. It's, it's not only a path issue, a lot of worm burners are caused by you trying to close the golf club too early. Uh, those mm-hmm. worm burners typically go left for the right-handed player right. and right for the left-handed player. Uh, and what I see at my academy is it's a toss-up, and a lot of it has to do with what your experience level is, your your uh, uh, skill level is, your handicap level. When I see this happen typically with a good player, it's normally ball position and them getting a little bit anxious and trying to prevent a sway, and they're just capable of overcorrecting which creates the worm burner, hitting it really low on the face. They're hitting up on it, but it's so low mm-hmm. on the face, it just has zero loss to get it up and flying for them. Yeah, and, and as you pointed out earlier, if it's straight, uh, and even though you're not getting you know really any height to it, at least you know your club face is square uh, when you're making connections. So at least that's one positive that's that you can take thing. away from it. Yeah, exactly. It better better be straight than, than not, and... And we can always, uh, again, with the help of your local professional, uh, work on some of the other issues as well. Uh, Clint, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit. Um, really, there's two sides of it, but I'm going to address at this point uh, the green side bunker. Where should we play? This is something that a lot of people get confused about. Now we're in a different territory. Uh, we're not hitting off a nice fairway or, or off of the tee box. Uh, now we found ourselves in the bunker. Where should we be playing the ball in a typical greenside bunker shot and why? Maybe give us sort of an explanation as to why uh, we're doing what we need to do in the bunker as opposed to a, a regular shot off the fairway or, or a tee. Well, I, I think there's, there's several different uh, theories involved here, and a lot of it comes down 
to what kind of sand you have in the bunkers. Um, mm-hmm. If it's more of a firm type sand, uh, you'd, you'd want to set the ball up. I, I've always wanted a person to have a target of, as we've always heard, an inch, inch and a half behind the ball. That's where I want to go, and I'm going to try to guarantee that that's the bottom of my swing. So that mm-hmm. would mean that the ball is going to be played a little bit more forward of center because I don't want to hit the ball. I want to hit the sand behind the ball. So that's my target. So that should be the bottom of my swing. You know, I typically like to see a person, you know, use a 56 to 60-degree wedge for your greenside bunker. You know, get the hips opened up. I like to get a person to get their hips opened up to where they want their hips at impact. So there's not going to be a lot of movement in their hips and legs. They've already preset that impact position with it and more of a shoulder and arm swing to make sure they hit behind the ball and catch that, the, the bottom. If you're dealing with a, a fluffy sand, uh, you're probably going to bring that target a little bit closer to the ball. Uh, those are a little bit but trickier because um, if you catch the fluffy sand, you know, real soft sand, it's a little heavier. Uh, you hit a couple inches behind it, it's probably not going to be uh, get the ball out of the bunker. Uh, so you got to get a little bit closer. I find the, the soft sand bunkers more difficult, uh, just mm-hmm. personally. I like a little bit of a firm bunker, and I think if you see on television, the, most of the time you see the bunkers on tour are of the firm nature. You don't see that real fluffy white sand like we used to see. So I think a lot of golf courses now are going to a little firmer sand, which makes it easier. But to answer mm-hmm. the question positioning, Club face is open. I like to make sure that people get the lines, the the grooves on the club for right-handed player. The club should be opened up enough to where those grooves are aimed at their left foot. Okay, mm-hmm. So that means the club face is going to be open. It's going to give them the advantage of more bounce on the club uh, than, than normal. And if they make the bottom of their swing an inch or so where they want to hit behind it, and neutralize the lower half by presetting the hip rotation, then they, they should be successful. The most important thing that people I see happen, and I, you probably do too and John as well, mm-hmm. is people get real tentative in the bunker. Right. They don't hit through the ball. They, they kind of want to chunk it out. You know, I was, when I was coming up and learning, I was told that, that get it out of the bunker you're in, even if, it's in the, if it goes in the bunker on the other side of the green, Get it out of the bunker you're in. Um, mm-hmm. Use the ballistics of the sand. Take the sand, another idea, take the sand, put the sand behind the ball on the green. If the sand gets on the green, the ball's going to be on it. Uh, so if I was going to tell them to do anything, be aggressive. Hit through the ball, hit to the target. I see so many people, and they get in the bunker, they just hit to the ball, and it just stops, and they wonder why the ball moved two feet. Yeah, you know, that, so be aggressive. That, that's a, get it out of there. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very common, and I think John would uh, certainly agree with that. We see a lot of that's people; right. they just sort of stop uh, in their tracks as soon as they get to the ball, and you know, the right. ball sometimes just sort of flops a, a foot or so in front yeah. of them, and they wonder why, <laughs> yeah. and they just end up <laughs> digging into the why. sand. So, uh, right. yeah, so be aggressive. <laughs> if I tell, right, exactly. if I can teach you and give you any advice in bunkers, lay the club open the best you can, get the angle of those those face grooves towards your left foot and take a swing at it. Get it out of there. Mm-hmm. Well said. John, I'm going to sort of flip the script a little bit. We're going to stay with Bunker for just a, another moment or two. Um, and, and this is uh, 
we're going to talk about fairway bunkers because obviously this is a little bit different than what we typically would find around uh, Greenside. Um, typically, they don't tend to be as, as uh, certainly as deep and, and necessarily as fluffy, but uh, some are depending on what course you're playing on. Anything different we should know here um, than what we would typically might uh, do as far as setup and, and uh, conditions and so forth. Uh, what, what are we looking at here in a fairway bunker? Sure. The first thing I want to say is if, if you're in a fairway bunker and there's a high lip in front of you, you need to rethink how you're playing that golf hole. When you're in a fairway bunker with a yeah. high lip and then you go over to the green and look backwards, that bunker has totally disappeared. The architect's mm -hmm. trying to tell you you should never be in this bunker. It's meant as a target. Maybe you took a club that got too far and got in that bunker, but most people, it's more ball flight oriented with the curvature of the ball. You've got to pick mm -hmm. a target to avoid it. So it is penal. And the first thing to understand to get penal is what's the club that's going to get you out and get it the furthest down the fairway. And if you have to sacrifice getting to the green, then that's the lump you took by getting it in there. Set up. I have a general rule. When your lie is in trouble, that ball goes in the middle of your stance, and this is no exception. That ball in the middle of the stance with any club is going to guarantee, or not guarantee, but make it more likely that you're going to hit the ball on the way down, not at the center, but actually on the mm -hmm. way down. It's going to prohibit you from chunking it, probably won't top it, and if you do top it and the lip's not too high and you chose the right club, you've got a good chance. Another little hack, per se, is take the yardage you think you need to go, take one more golf club. You're going to probably mm -hmm. need to get your feet in the sand a little bit, sunken down. When the feet are below the ball, you're going to have to choke up on the club. That's going to take distance off. But then take that club, turn it upside down, lay it in the fairway right next to the bunker, and put your foot on the face. And as you do, the shaft's going to come up in the air at an angle that is statically, meaning if everything is still, this club would produce this kind of trajectory and then guesstimate, hey, is this trajectory going to get me out of this bunker with that high lip? If you're doing all these things decisionally, you have a really good chance of hitting a good shot. Like Clint in the, in the green side bunker, don't hold back. Make your normal swing. If you've got a really good footing there, ball middle, You've chosen the right club. It's going to get over the lip in front of you. There's no reason to try to pick at it, lift it, stop. It requires just a normal swing as if you're in the fairway. So many people get in there and try to manipulate what that shot does, and you can't. It's a swing, not a manipulation. And then if all else fails, you can't pick the right club, you can't get to the green, the lip's too high, chances are play a wedge play a 9-iron, play a 7-iron, play something where you can go sideways a little bit, reduce the lip in front of you, put it back in play. Keep the par that you're playing in play, particularly with a par 5. I see so many people mm -hmm. bogey par 5s that are in fairway bunkers because of poor decisions 100% of the time, not poor execution. It's a poor decision on your part to play that overly aggressive Par fives build in one extra shot for you, and you fail to recognize mm. it. Yep. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, and some great advice, too, because, again, we all, uh, you know, at some point find ourselves in this position um, if you're out there playing. And, 
And, uh, you know, we, we often see where even in the pros, we will see them sometimes, uh, you know, I've seen many make a, a bad decision, especially when you go over to somewhere like St. Andrews or, or some of the uh, courses over in Europe uh, when they're playing the Open, and you'll see these very deep, high-lit bunkers, and you'll actually see some of the players trying to get it out over the front and, you know, you know that a lot of times it's just going to fall and, and hit the lip and come back in. Um, but the smarter player will, as you said, John, will play it to the side if need be or, or as close to the side as possible, maybe still trying to advance a little bit but avoiding that lip and maybe just taking uh, a little bit safer shot. And I think that's, uh, again, it comes down to course management. Uh, but some great answers for both of you uh, on the bunkers and that because that's something I think a lot of people really get confused with still. It doesn't matter how many you know, lessons they take, and that, that's an area that I think a lot of high handicappers, to be honest, are quite afraid of, the bunkers. And actually, if you talk to most of the pros, they say that some of the easiest shots to hit is just once you understand the technique and what to do, uh, it makes it that much easier. But I think a lot of people get stymied over that. Clint, I'm going to come back to you, and this is one, too, another area that uh, everybody at some point, even the best players, get faced with, and a lot of people struggle with, and that is hitting out of thick rough. Uh, it can be very difficult for many what are some options when faced with, with this type of shot? What are we looking at? Um, and, again, if you want to use a specific scenario just to, to make it uh, a little more visual, sure. uh, by all means, go to it. But, but uh, thick rough is, is something that we get stymied with a little bit, too, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, the best advice I can get is just don't hit it in there. I mean, that's, that's the right. smart thing to do. But... Um, you know, it just depends on how thick it is and the type of grass. You know, there, there's a varied amount of different roughs out there. You know, I grew up and still play a lot of golf in Bermuda rough. And um, the ball tends to sit up on it if it's a certain height. But if it gets a little thick and it's down in there, you have to almost have the same attitude as John was having out of the fairway bunker. You have to make a good decision to understand you hit it in the rough. It's thick. It, it's, it's a semi-penalty. So how are you going to overcome uh, that poor shot, really? Because you don't want to let one bad shot multiply into two or three more by overplaying something that when you really need to try to not take your wedge and your putter out of your hand and advance the ball. So there's a decision to be made uh, that if, you, if it's a semi-heavy rough and I think if you're in close enough to the green where you have a high-lofted club, uh, then I think you can play maybe a little bit more aggressive to, to try to move the ball up on the green. Understanding when that ball comes out of that thick rough, it's going to hit the ground and run. It's going to have top spin. It's not going to stop. So you can usually play a little bit less club. Be aggressive if you think you can. I think maybe an 8-iron, 9-iron type plays, you go ahead and try to play your shot. If you're back out, you know, 190, 200 yards out, I think you have to start looking at uh, where do I want to lay this ball up to give me a really good chance of hitting a good third shot or maybe fourth shot on par fives uh, in order to be able to maybe take advantage of a good chip and a putt to, to salvage the hole. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it just really comes down to situations, really, and good decision-making on how to overcome the poor shot, not overplay it. So, you know, if you're having to, to advance it, I'm with John on this as well. Take out a high lofted club. Don't take a chance. Mm -hmm. You want to hit a shot you're going to be 100% successful with if you're having to lay up. Take that pitching wedge or nine iron, move it up the fairway the best you can, 
knowing that pitching wedge or nine iron hit, hits the ground is going to go a little bit, you know, further maybe. Uh, but generally, just don't overplay the shot. Take your take your medicine, move it up, and try to chip and putt. So, um, outside of that, I mean, if you get lucky and it sits up on the grass a little bit, you know, take your normal club out and and maybe think about one club shorter because you might catch a little bit of a flyer. You're gonna hit a little knuckleball out of there. Won't have the spin, so the ball may travel a little bit lower and it may travel a little bit further. Yeah, some great advice. On that, and, and again, really, it, it comes down to assessment. You want to look um, where your right. target is. If, if you're, you know, if you're a reasonable distance uh, or a fairly close distance to the green, uh, and you think you can go for it, you know, assess the situation. You know, what trouble lays ahead? If you've got a, you know, a pond nearby, or, or a, you know, right. or multiple bunkers near the front of the green, you don't want to get into a worse situation. So sometimes it might be a layup. I mean, if you're really close. I think you can probably get away with it. But if you're, as you said, you know, 190 or 200-plus yards and you're not real comfortable hitting that shot, um, you know, you might want to lay up um, and, and give yourself a better chance because you don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of times we see that people think, well, I'm only, you know, 185 yards away, but you're, the ball's sitting down in the rough and they're trying to go for it and maybe they're not able to really pull that shot off as, as uh, easily as, as, you know, uh, as we see the pros do. Um, but uh, great answer, though. I like the, some of the options that you give. Uh, John, I'm going to bat, and this is kind of touches on a little bit of what we talked about in the beginning, um, dealing with the shots again as well. But uh, we see this all the time, people hitting fat and thin shots uh, constantly uh, on the golf course and on the practice tee as well. What am I doing wrong here? What's happening? Is this a setup issue? What, what's going on here? I'm back and forth, fat and thin, fat and thin. What am I doing wrong here? Bottom line, as Clint said earlier, you have an inconsistent swing bottom. you got to understand what the swing bottom is. Think of a circle, and at the bottom of that circle is the bottom of your swing arc. And that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean the ball's got to be there. With some shots it should, with others it shouldn't. And we're talking about really bad lies, rough, bunkers, that kind of thing. Having the ball in the middle is a good thing, but if you're not able to consistently strike the same place, whether it's middle, front, back, it doesn't matter, you're going to have a really difficult time with fat and thin shots. The the common thing that most people think is your bottom hand, the dominant hand, is trying to deliver the goods. Uh, not only square in the club, but trying to hit it monstrously far. And that's not too off, but at the same time, are you set up for that to happen? So Mm -hmm. a really good way of understanding this is go ahead and make your practice swings. Realize where your feet are on the ground and let that club hit the ground. Is that the center of your swing? Do this hundreds of times if you wish until you can find that, hey, that club strikes the ground in the exact same place each and every time. Mm-hmm. There's tons of drills right. out there in Golf Tips Magazine. Clint and I have tons of drills online and through our academies that can help you with that. But that's what it all boils down to. Before Clint and I or you can ever mm-hmm. say, let's give you a drill to delay the right hand or make the front wrist more firm, you've got to find out where the center is. Last thing with this, where the club strikes the ground isn't necessarily the center, particularly Mm -hmm. if you're a better player. 
that divot, particularly with, say, six iron through wedges, you're going to see the divot just a little bit deeper, a little bit in front of where that club strikes the ground. That's mm-hmm. your center. That's the bottom. And the better players know this. For the novice, the high handicapper, let's just find a place to get this done and find a place where you can actually hit the ground the same place. One of the things you are is ball bound, and the, the most universal drill that I've ever given, it dates back to before the apparatus was even invented and people piled sand up on the, on the ground to tee the ball up, is put a tee in front of the golf ball and make it your point, make it your effort and emphasis to hit the tee, not the golf ball. Put the ball behind the tee. And what you're going to mm-hmm. find is you will start striking the ball more consistently. The club will bottom out in front. But more importantly, your ball boundness. I'm bound to determine to do something to that XYZ ball. <laughs> is going to go away right. because now your conscious focus is no longer on the ball. It's on a consistent center that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and well said. And, and one more thing I want to throw in there as well. Um, you know, a lot of times people, and, and this does actually make a difference um, and, and, and in causing the problem too, is a lot of people look at the back of the ball. When they're setting up, they're looking at the back of the ball or behind the ball. And this can actually change um, where that bottom happens. I've always firm believe. Maybe you both might disagree with this. I'm always a firm believer as having them look at the front half of the ball, not the back half, because that forces me to then move my body to make sure that I'm going to shift to that side. Um, now, for some, it may not work. I don't know. I want to quickly just get your thoughts on that. So basically, what I'm saying is, instead of focusing on the back of the ball, uh, and I'm talking mainly for irons here, uh, it's a little bit different, obviously, with the driver, but um, for irons here. I like to get students to focus on the front half of the ball as opposed to the back half of the ball. I find that that tends to keep them focused on, just as you're pointing out with the tee, John. Uh, what are your thoughts there? And, and Clint, if you want to jump in as well uh, after he responds, um, what you think of that uh, analogy? Sure. It's, it is uh, a commonly accepted vision that instructors like yourself give pupils, give clients. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily do that per se because if you're ball bound it won't matter what side of the ball you're looking at you're just trying to hit it right for the little bit more skilled person but also the person who who has good lateral stability who can make mm-hmm. that turn that is a nice little fudge a nice little visual image to to give them to do that when somebody's having a really really hard time getting the mm-hmm. ball up in the air and you're you're asking them to think of the front. What I've found is people start scooping a lot. It, it goes counterproductive mm-hmm. simply because of the overall ball boundness. I, I think the, as far as elite players, I've absolutely given that to elite players, particularly when they're trying to make curvature of the ball happen in particular right. ways based on the situation they're in. Very good. Um, Clint, what do you think? Any thoughts on that or agree, disagree? I, or? I can't add much to what John just said. I, I think that both of you are on, <laughs> on target. <laughs> um, you know, it's thing we've all, and you know, worked with people in their games and, and 
we've tried different things to for the same problem and some people attach to one solution and others attach to another. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I think as a good instructor, a good teacher, uh, you try to give your students the advantage of trying a couple of different ways and attaching to the mm-hmm. one that they can uh, identify with the most, and, that, and that's possibly one of the things that would work. No question about that. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I agree. Um, again, not every step works for every player. Obviously, there's certain constants in the golf swing, uh, but some things might work for one and not necessarily work for another. I was just curious to, to right. see what you guys thought of that, and I know a lot of uh, instructors over the years have used something similar to that. Um, again, putting the T in front as well is another one. Um, I was just curious to your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to come to you on this last one under uh, on the golf course, and that is what's my weight distribution, uh, irons versus driver or fairway woods, that sort of thing. Um, you know, is it a 50-50 with the irons? Is it, um, you know, more 60-40 with the, with the woods or longer clubs? Give us an idea. A lot of people get confused with it. I see people setting up. Some will sort of set up and they're leaning a little bit more on their front. Again, we're going to – let me just preface this. Uh, we're talking about the right-handed golfer here. Um, right. so obviously, what you're saying is going to be the, the opposite. But um, mm-hmm. what's the typically the rule of thumb, if any, for weight distribution for playing iron shots versus uh, your longer clubs like your driver or fairway woods? Okay, so we're we're going to exclude pitching and chipping here, right? Yes, um, yes. Okay. Um, full, yeah, full shots well, only. Yeah, okay. Um you know, I may have a different opinion about this. I, I believe, you know, we talk about a person needs to maintain balance through their swing mm-hmm. for control. So I don't want to start out out of balance. And if I'm leaning maybe 60% one way and 40% the other, I find that to be a guaranteed I'm out of balance before I ever get started. Mm-hmm. So I like to see a person get into a proper setup position to where they feel like that they're into their feet not leaning one way or the other. Um, you know, now, sometimes you have a student that is leaning and you need to get them to go the other way, but I tend to want to see a person feel like that they're equally balanced and, and in control. You know, I've always used the analogy is if you got set up to hit a ball and I come push you a little bit from the front or the back, are you going to be able to give me resistance? And that tells me that I'm in control, I'm ready to move, uh, my body's ready. But if I've got 60% leaning one way or 40 the other, you know, I'm I'm out of balance. I can't really give you resistance in that direction. So I tend to want to get a person to sit into their feet and get centered up over their over the, the middle of their body, not necessarily leaning one way or the other, because I, I want them to maintain control of the movement, and that requires balance. And I guess in my opinion of it, if I'm going to maintain something, that assumes that I have it. So to maintain balance, I need to start out in balance. And from the body physics standpoint, being balanced means that you have equal distribution across the center. And so that means to me that you're into your feet, not necessarily leaning one way or the other. So I guess the long story short is I'd like to see about 50-50. I want to get you Mm -hmm. centered uh, over, over the middle of your body. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and obviously, well said. And, and obviously, as you pointed out, for uh, pitch uh, shots or, or short, uh, small chip shots, things like that, there might sure. be a little bit of variance there because you're, you're using Correct. an entirely different set. The, the reason why I ask that is a lot of people, and I see this all the time, I mean, I, I can't help it, but, you know, when you're up there and sometimes when I'm just up sort of hitting some shots on my own, and I'll look down the range, and I'll watch people. And, you know, for their iron shots, they're pretty, pretty much 50-50, but I'll see them with their longer clubs, and, uh, and it's young and old, but I'll see them, you know, especially with their driver, and they've been sort of taught or their understanding is you've got to get behind the ball, which is, of course, is true, but it's more about ball position. And you'll see them leaning, uh, again, for right-handed golfers, you see them leaning way to the right um, mm-hmm. because they feel like they've got it in order to get that ball up. And, and what ultimately ends up happening is it introduces a reverse pivot because they, they've now got to thrust themselves on the other side, and if they don't get over onto the front foot uh, enough when they're coming through the strike, then ultimately what ends up happening is they end up staying back on the right foot. And that's the reason why I wanted to bring that question up was because this is something that you see a lot. And, John, I'm sure if you want to chime in as well, I'm sure this is something that you've seen as well. Uh, share your thoughts if you'd like. Um, if they differ or, or same or what have you, but uh, this is something I'm sure you've seen a lot as well, correct? I do. I do. I see it. Believe it or not, I see it across the board, regardless of skill level. Uh, with an elite player, they're trying to do something different with the golf ball when they're staying behind it, and that's a mm-hmm. big red visual flag for me when I'm when I'm dealing with my elite players. But I can't disagree with you or Clint to embellish a little bit. With Clint, uh, what, what people have to realize is we're playing a sport where we have to make the first action, whereas mm-hmm. other sports we've played in the past, we are now reacting to a movement of some type, whether it's the object that we're trying to hit or catch or hit or do something with. We're, 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 we're uh, reacting to a person. We're reacting to a situation. And golf is a static sport. So when I, I love how Clint puts it, you got to feel it in your feet. And he used the word centered. Uh, centered is, hey, 50-50, left to right, toe to heel. What you've got to realize if with your a right-hander, with your right arm, a left-hander, with your left arm, when you go to take that hand and put it below the top hand, you are now mm-hmm. all, taking a side tilt with your spine. And in essence, making a little bit of shift back. And in most cases, Mm -hmm. that's all the shift you need is that right Right. hand, the left hand below the top hand. There's no need to over-exaggerate it. Um, The other thing I'll throw in there is everybody's got a different opinion as to where you should stand. My 50-50 has everything to do with your belt down because of the mm-hmm. bottom hand. Will that put maybe 5% extra because for every action there's an equal and opposite, my right hand goes a little lower, puts the upper mm-hmm. body a little bit leaning right, will my left hip load a little bit more? Sure. What I want everybody to understand is regardless of what weight distribution system you believe in, the idea is from the belt down as you start, were you 50-50? And each system is trying to imply a way to get to your brain from a learning standpoint of view to have you understand that at impact, at least 5%, if not more, of the weight on your backside 
is being transferred through rotation posting up into that front side. That is what I, I don't care which one you believe in, those, that is the plain and simple truth about when you hear weight distribution. And I love mm-hmm. what Clint said, centered. Think centered from the belt down. You can't go wrong because your upper body is going to give back a little bit for every action equal and opposite reaction. You can maintain. I love what he said with that, too. You've got to have it before you can maintain it, and that's how you get it. Well said. Uh, some great thoughts as well, John. Thanks, guys, uh, both of you. All right, we're going to shift now to equipment. Just got a few questions here, not very many, because we're uh, moving into the second half uh, of the discussion. Uh, equipment, does it really matter what I play? And the first one, uh, John, take a deep breath, because I'm going to come back, because technically the last question was uh, addressed to Clint, but uh, Clint can certainly uh, jump in on this as well. But um, how do you know if the right if the shaft you're playing is right for your game, and I'm talking about obviously stiffness uh, and or flex, um, those types of areas what I'm specifically wanting you to dial in on here. So how do I know as a player whether or not the shaft that's in my club or that I get fitted for is right for my game? What am I looking for? I think as a general rule, to say it in a layman's terms, if you cannot control the face of the golf club at any part of your swing, that shaft isn't working correctly for you. That's a general rule. Um, is it too stiff? Is it too loose? Is it too short? Is it too long? Is it too tip stiff? Is it too butt stiff? Who knows? But if you cannot feel like you can feel the club at various parts of your swing, not to over-control it, but just to feel it, that shaft isn't working for you. Now, where do you go from there? These days with technology advancement, shafts shafts evolve from a generational technology advancement every six to eight months. It used Mm -hmm. to be when I was in South Carolina near Clint, the general rule was, hey, if you're hooking this thing and everything's shutting down, there's a lot of torque in the tip, probably a little bit too loose, go to a little bit firmer shaft. And the opposite's true. If it was being pushed to the right a little bit for the right hand, or maybe it's a little bit too stiff, why don't you go with something a little bit lighter? Uh, you can't really rule by that these days, particularly with the variations right. within manufacturers. So mm-hmm. my recommendation, number one, the shaft, the besides the face of the club, the most important part of the golf club, you've got to have that working right for you. Find somebody who's very versed and shaft fitting, not club fitting, shaft fitting. Mm-hmm. Because if you find the right shaft, you can put any club on that shaft and it should work within reason. Right. So long as it's a mm-hmm. well-crafted piece of, piece of equipment. Um, it's, it's worth the weight that you pay for a good shaft to keep you in play. And this goes all the way down to juniors. I got to give a yeah. shout out to a partner, U.S. Kids, who years ago recognized this and did something about it. Uh, Clint will agree with us. I'm sure you will, Ted. Probably the most. Mm-hmm. There's two big junior flaws. One of them's leaping out of your shoes, and the other one is casting the club <laughs> at the top. And the casting the club at the top for a junior has everything to do with a club that didn't fit them, whether it's too long, too short. 
but most of the time too heavy because the shaft too didn't heavy. work. And U.S. kids did a yep. really, really good job of right. recognizing that and doing something about it years ago. And heads and tails, they're still, from an R&D standpoint of view, ahead of the rest. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm laughing inside because, you know, I've seen a lot of junior golfers that literally leap out of their shoes. And it's kind of, you right. know, you, you hit it right on the head with that. Um, Clint, I'm going to stick with shafts for a second, but I want to ask you something a little bit different yeah, sure. because, uh, again, okay. there's there's so much technology change now, and, and I think John did a great job in, in, in touching on that area. Uh, but what about types of shafts? What's the best for me, steel or graphite? I mean, you know, is there a well, difference? And, again, keeping with the original quiz, does it really matter what sure. I play? Oh, absolutely it does. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, let me fortify what John said very quickly. Um, I'm fortunate enough to work for a major manufacturer doing club fitting and, and demo days. And um, I've been all over South Carolina with it. And I have four different heads and probably 200 shafts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the shaft is it. And mm-hmm. I, I think that with the technology that we have today, um, you know, just in my case, I went from a steel shaft, 105 grams, down to a graphite shaft now weighing 60 grams, and I picked mm-hmm. up a half a club in distance. Yep. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, without question, the type of shaft, particularly the stiffness and the weight nowadays, you know, back back in the day we had stiff, regular, and extra stiff, and, and it weighed what it weighed you know, mm-hmm. and now we got extra stiff, stiff, everything's in different weights and whatever. Right. So it's not necessarily just the flex anymore. It's the mm-hmm. combination of three things, the combination of material, combination of the weight, and the, comp- and the combination of the flex or the deflection in the shaft along with the torque. And to be honest with you, as much as we split hairs on some of this stuff, the only way you're going to know is to get with somebody that has some technology that can do some uh, comparisons. In today's world, there's some great launch monitors out there that are not real expensive. Mm-hmm. For, you know, um, I've got two of them that we use, and they're very similar. One's a lot of money, and the other one's not too bad. So they're, they're out there in the marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of guys are picking them up now where they used to be cost prohibitive, for your local club pro to have a good launch monitor, not so much mm-hmm. now. The technology is catching up and the price is coming down. So look for that yep. person in your market that's got that technology and do some comparison. That's the only answer you have. You have to compare. There's not any cookie-cutter thing out there because there's just too many little small <laughs> nuanced variances in some of this stuff. And so you have to, you have to test it. And I'm not here to tell you that, hey, graphite's the best thing going, because it may not be. And you can't say, well, steel is it either. So you have to compare. I would encourage people that when when we're out there doing club fittings and testing, I want to see generally two or three graphite versus steel, three different weights. You know, it's out there. And start comparing and see if there's a massive difference. If there's not a massive difference, then I think it comes down to what feels best in a person's hand. Some people like a little lighter club. Some people like a little heavier one. If there's not a lot of difference in performance, then you have to kind of go with with what feels right to them. 
Right. Uh, and a lot of times that's the answer I ask for. Which one of you like the feel of? Because there's not a lot of difference in production here. And the only right. way you're going to know that is to go to a certified get, get somebody that's and you can ask around in your marketplace. They'll tell you, hey, go to this guy. He knows what he's doing. He's got the technology. Mm-hmm. Spend the money. John's absolutely correct. Spend the money, mm-hmm. get it right, because if you buy a set of clubs in today's market, you're not going out there spending nickels and dimes. It's dollars. So invest right. a little money up front to get the most bang for your buck when you spend the big dollars. So he's absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and just a couple things you know, on that. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, you, you definitely, especially if you're going to play with any sort of consistency, if you're you know, once in a blue moon or maybe occasionally you, you get together with a, a buddy or two a few times a year, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to that extent. But if you're going to play with any sort of regularity, you definitely want to make sure that you're fitted well. And, and just to go to your point about going to demo days and things like that, with technology now, especially with the drivers, I mean, you, you watch these guys oh, yeah. and they're swapping out heads on and shafts, uh, you know, left and right. And, and the thing is the technology has done such a way that it can be done with, with literally within just a few seconds. They can swap out oh, yeah. uh, shafts very, very easily. Um, so Correct. there's really no excuse. And there's usually in most markets, uh, certainly with, within the major markets, maybe some of the rural areas don't yet, but uh, certainly ma- major markets, um, these manufacturers have demo days going all over the, all, right across the country. So it doesn't matter what state all you're in, time. I guarantee you can – yeah, exactly. And it's a continual. All the time. Um, and – and, and that's a great opportunity to go and try some things out. Um, some of them might have a single manufacturer. Some have multiple manufacturers. So, uh, again, you know, pick what, what works best for you. But definitely go out and do that because it does make a big difference. Um, the last question, John, I'm going to start with you, but then, Clint, I'm going to get you to uh, chime in sure. as well if you'd like. But um, uh, what about the irons? Um, you know, we hear forged cavity back. You know, we hear all of these different types of irons. Again, going to my original question under equipment, does it really matter what I play. What's the difference, first off, between the two? Uh, a more forgiving club, obviously, or cavity back, uh, often has been called. Now, I'm sure there's other uh, products out there as well. But uh, And obviously, our typical forged uh, irons that we've uh, uh, known and see a lot of the tour players had played many years ago, but that's even changing a little bit. What are your thoughts here about irons? You're right. Technology's changed quite a bit, and we're... It, it's seen everything come full circle. Let's start by educating everybody with the metals involved and how these metals are produced. Forgings are typically a solid block of a of a metal, and the metal could be of various chemical uh, equations uh, versus metal, various metallurgy combinations, and. Forging basically means it's being hammered, it's being pressed, it's being manipulated into the shape. And in past, forgings had a lot of weight in the club, not necessarily evenly distributed, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes low, sometimes high. The majority of the times high, they were small, and the better players could do a lot with them. The shot makers mm-hmm. of yesteryear, the Sneeds, the Hogans, the Mm-hmm. Those kinds of guys really do a lot with them. Then there's casting. Casting is basically taking maybe the same metallurgy uh, components in the same balance, but you're melting it. And as you're melting mm-hmm. it, you're pouring it into a form, a cast, 
typically made out of multiple layers of sand and wax. And what this allows you to do is put the metal more evenly distributed and designed where you want it. And Carson Solheim was really the, the guy who put this out front with his ping yep. eye uh, clubs way yep. back in the early 60s. And it, it was revolutionary because what he was able to do is take weight and put it on the perimeter, and it made for a bigger sweet spot, not hugely bigger by science measurements, but big enough where the average person had now a decent chance to hit a ball similarly to the better player. We've now come full circle. There are forging cast cavity backs. I'm sorry, there are forged cavity backs, meaning they are mm -hmm. able to press and hammer and manipulate the weight of this solid block of iron into something that a not-so-good player can actually play and feel like, wow, I'm playing a, I'm playing an elite tour players club. But then there's right. tour players out there, particularly with their driving irons, they're playing cast clubs that perform so much better now, very similarly to a to a forging that gives immediate feedback that the ball manipulation and spin controls better. What's best for someone out there? I think hands down the two of you will agree with me. Anything that's the most forgiving that you can play your best mm -hmm. at that's typically a cast iron. Uh, when you get into the higher clubs, you're going to reach a point where the shaft's a little bit too long. It's almost imperative that you go to a cast club at that point. You see a lot mm -hmm. of clubs that are what's called hybrids. The scoring clubs are more forged, or they could be even a cast forging, quote-unquote, where they're casting the metal, making it look like a forging. There's a little bit more metal in it, but again, Due to the casting, they're able to control where that weighting is. Um, when the USGA allowed for the use of various materials, and it first came out in putters, it's now rampant in the club head design business, particularly with irons recently. And it can make a club feel more soft, create a different sound. But at the end of the day, what's the club that allows you to play your best and strike the middle? You need a club fitter to help you with that. I think what most higher handicappers will find is if they check their ego at the door, that cast club's going to do them much better. And as your skills improve and your scoring gets better, yeah, you're going to go probably first to a forged wedge system mm -hmm. and then start working your way up into the middle irons. It's rare. Uh, Clint, you, you hang around some of the same guys I do. I don't see much over a four iron now in the elite player's bag. And if it is, it's a cast or some type of hybrid cast kind of thing, simply because they've got to play their best. The, the dinner on the table is dependent upon that. And they're, they've basically said, hey, th this is really good equipment. And that's why you should try it regardless of skill level. Well, you definitely, I think, uh, covered quite a bit on that. Clint, I don't know if you have anything you want to add or, yeah, uh, I, or I can, go ahead. Yeah. The only thing I can add to it is that John's absolutely correct in his assumptions and, and appraisals of what people ought to be playing. And he sees in the elite players four irons. What I see a lot now when I'm doing these fittings is we hardly ever go over a five iron. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they go to these, you know, hybrids, uh, you know, wood combination, 
fairway-looking hybrids to, to, to take the place, and I think it's, it's outstanding. I mean, it's it's what they need to do. And and when you do these testings, and like you said, check your ego at the door, and you really <laughs> look at the data, that's where you're going to be. Um, and so that's that's all you know. So he hit, yeah, he. I got a little education there, but I mean, that was pretty thorough. <laughs> yeah, Going thank you for me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what we call old school. You know, it, what's interesting go, though, is, uh, is, 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 you know, John, you, you pointed out about the Forge Clubs, you know, from, from way back when, when some of the real shot makers, you know, the, the, sort of the downside, I think, with uh, a lot of the equipment today is it, it's a little bit more difficult to shape the shots as easily as they did back then. Uh, the way the equipment is designed today, um, you don't see, I mean, I can remember players like Chichi Rodriguez, for instance, and I know this is, I'm dating myself as well, um, where, I mean, they would have these low sweeping hooks. And, and of course, Trevino, you know, with his, his uh, setups as well, uh, had some pretty miraculous shots. Uh, you know, you're not seeing that as much today uh, as easily with the equipment uh, just because of the technology and the way it's designed. And it's really kind of a shame because it uh, you know, it made it, in my opinion, a lot more interesting to watch to see them pull off some miraculous shot. And now it all seems to be very cookie cutter. What are your What are your thoughts, uh, John? First, and then and then. Uh, okay, cool. I I would tend to somewhat agree with that. And it's not just the clubs and the shafts. It is the grips, believe it or not. It's absolutely mm-hmm. the golf balls. Uh, absolutely. And, and it's also skill. It's also skill. When, when, you know, you go you. If you were to take a picture of the same grill room every year, the same day, same time for the past 40 years, you're going to see a totally different human being in that grill room. 40 years ago, they looked like me. Now they look like two right. They're athletes. Right. And that has a lot to do with it, too. Um, the, the real key I'd like to do is twist what you just said and say it differently to the person who shows up on my tee box, you know who you are. I don't have to name the multiple names that show up to my tee box <laughs> with clubs that are 20-plus years old and grips yep. that are worn out and shafts that are mismatched. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you this way. If a pro's trying to hit it straighter and they're using the technology, why aren't you number one? Number two, I go back mm-hmm. to something I said earlier. Shaft technology, particularly from Japan and Asia, advances one technology generation forward every six to eight months. And what they have mm-hmm. there now, we don't have here right now. And the tour pros mm-hmm. are grabbing it as quick as they can. Club heads, drivers, irons, about every 12 to 24 months based on the manufacturer, you see mm-hmm. a significant difference in technology generation advancement where these things will make a difference for you. I don't care whether you shoot 180 or you shoot 58. The equipment makes a difference. The technology advancements are so far advanced, I can put a different club in your hand and have you swing the same way, and you're going to hit it further, you're going to hit it straighter. And then, by the Mm -hmm. way, let's go fit a ball. If you want to buy a game, that's the best way to buy a game, but don't come to my tea box with a 35-year-old set of Tommy Armour 845s you've you got to get yeah. more out of them. Another right. retail opportunity. Right. 
I think some of the same guys have taken lessons from both Clint and I, too. I think the same guy's showing up. I think he's just rotating yeah. around pros because, yeah, we've around, all done that. Absolutely. Yeah. Clinton, any, any final but, thoughts to that? Or yeah, I think you pretty much agree. John, yeah, I agree with him 100%. I was going to bring up the point. You make a lot about the clubs, but, you know, you could do a lot with that old Titleist ball and that Spalding dot that was wound and soft. You could spin them. You can't do that much yeah. with these balls today, you know. So the golf ball plays a huge <laughs> role in hitting it straighter by far. He's absolutely correct. So, no, that was wonderful. De- Definitely. All right, guys, we've got to wrap up the Coach's Corner. I, I have to make way for my very special guest this sure. evening. But uh, as always, I uh, appreciate it and you giving of your time. And I think we had a, a pretty yeah. good, robust discussion tonight with uh, some common areas and, and faults that uh, we find out uh, on, on the lesson tee and, and out in the golf course as well with some of our students. But, um, uh, John, do you want to give a, a quick uh, shout us out to how they can best reach you if they want to get in touch? contact with you, and same with Clint. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Uh, first off, Clint, always a pleasure. Absolutely, um, The days that we would hang out and sort of cross paths, not <clears> only <throat> with our golf balls, but with our vehicles and having a beer here and there, I miss those. And uh, glad glad I could spend some time with you. Always a pleasure. Ted, an honor as always. Appreciate the opportunity to share the passion, share the growth, share the love of the game. Early on, I was pretty smart. I was able to capture John Hughes Golf, and it's at .com, hashtag, and just recently YouTube handed me that handle, which is awesome. John Hughes Golf, that's the way you can find me. Uh, start looking for the holidays. Uh, I am going to I'm gonna make an offer that you can't refuse, and I think my wife's going to check my pulse and the chemicals in my brain to make sure I'm sane with this stuff, but I believe in what I'm going to be providing you. And I really hope you take a serious look at it and join me. And and thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, John. Clint, go ahead. Yeah. uh, Ted, as I I asked earlier before we got on the air, I'm going to take my moment here to give a shout out to a good friend of mine. His Mm -hmm. name is Donnie Fredericks. And for, for your listeners, he made two hole in ones in the, in four hole stretch with the same club and the same ball and the odds on that was one in 65 million, along with the two birdies he made on the other two holes. So I just want to give him a shout out and tell him congratulations, and and hopefully he'll listen to the podcast or the show tonight, and he, he'll get a big kick and a big smile out of it. But again, everybody knows how to get a hold of me. I've I've put it out there every time. It's uh, ClintGolf001 at Yahoo.com, and uh, for all y'all folks out there. What we've said tonight was great, great information, particularly for clubs and, and your equipment, I think, was, was really important. Uh, and, again, mm-hmm. Donnie, congratulations on those two hole-in-ones, buddy. We'll see you. Congratulations as well. All right, thanks, guys. We'll see you next time on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, as always. Have a great weekend. All right, big Thanks, bud. Thanks. All right, John Hughes and Clint Wright joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. We're going to take a real quick break, and I'm going to be joined by tonight's very special guest, Ed Brockner. We'll be right back. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory, and apparel reviews. 
golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back, and I'm excited to be joined by this evening's guest. I'll tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll bring him on live onto the show. Uh, of course, uh, my very special guest this evening is Ed Brockner. He's the Vice President of the East Region Development for the WGA, which is the Western Golf Association and also the Evans Scholars Foundation. Uh, he joined them in May of 2021 as their Vice President of the East Region Development. Uh, he leads the development of the WGA's programs in the East Region to achieve their uh, 2030 ambitions. Uh, prior to the WGA, he served as the Executive Director of the First Tee in Metropolitan uh, New York, where he managed a staff of more than 40 employees at five uh, different facilities throughout the region. Uh, he's a native of Long Island, New York, and has been a golfer since age seven. He's also worked in a variety of other roles in the golf industry during his youth, including as a caddy. Uh, he was recruited to be a member of the varsity golf team at Yale University, where he uh, majored in history. And he went on to earn a master's degree in sports management at the Florida State University. And currently he lives in Westchester, New York. Please welcome my very special guest this evening, Ed Brockner. Good evening, Ed. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. Good evening. Uh, good evening. And uh, that's quite the list of, uh, of accolades, if you will, and quite the resume that you, uh, you bring to the show. I appreciate it very much. So let's, let's before we get into... Uh, the sort of the principle we were going to talk about tonight. I always like to, especially for, for new guests on the show, uh, just sort of talk briefly a little bit about uh, how you first got into golf, how you developed that passion. Obviously, you started very young, much like me, about the same age, age seven. Uh, so obviously, you were introduced very, very young uh, to this game. What was it about golf that really struck the chord for you? Yeah, I think that for me, I was really really lucky growing up where I did and when I did out on Long Island and uh, for me it was there's a little municipal golf course down the street neither of my parents really played golf and so uh, it was just a, an opportunity for to do something that was very accessible and uh, and you're very inexpensive on when I was a kid on Tuesdays we could play for a dollar out there and then you know once the pro shop closed at six um, we really just go out there and just make our own golf course and so it was really something that I enjoyed a lot as a, as a young person. And uh, I love team sports too, but I realized pretty early on I had a bit of a knack at golf and uh, just the game just really, I uh, just fell in love with it when I was a kid and uh, just the challenge of it. And, uh, you know, and just also just being out on the golf course and the whole design aspect and architecture, something I really started to become uh, interested in an early age. And so uh, uh, from there I had another public course in town, Crab Meadow. And then I was about 10 or 15 minutes east of uh Beth Page, so um, another, you know, the great mecca mm -hmm. of public golf. So uh, I was really fortunate and uh, just really had a lot of great access to the game. And that really um, has really been something that throughout my career has made me, uh, that I've really been interested in to be able to help other people be as lucky as I did uh, in having that access. What do you think you've learned from the game? What has it done for you? And I don't, I'm not talking about... Um, from a business standpoint, but I'm talking about personally. What what do you get from the game? Because there's a lot of folks out there that listen to the show, um, maybe for the first time, and don't necessarily golf a lot. Some may maybe have never golfed or just brand new to the game. What does the game do for you? What do you get out of the game, other than, as I said, from a business standpoint? Um, what does it do for you personally? 
I think that the game of golf just it really allows you to meet so many different types of people, and you know, a place mm-hmm. especially a place like Best Page. Um, I mean, you meet people from every single walk of life, and just learn so many things from them. And really, over the course of a round of golf, um, well, you know, someone once said this to me that you know, at the end of that round, you have three friends you had didn't have four hours earlier. And I think that's really true in the game of golf. And, and you just, and just, especially as a young person and, you know, I was running first tee and, you know, it's just something where you, you have to learn how to adjust and adapt to different situations. And we're out there on the golf course. I mean, you're sort of, you're sort of out there and you got to make the best of it. And that's, you know, my new role as a, you know, in, in working with Evan Scholars and as a caddy, these are all things that through the game of golf, you just get to meet so many different people. And it's always an interesting experience and just, a lot of fun. You just learn so much just talking to other people. Well, and I think also too, and, and I'm sure you'd probably agree, is is golf really in a lot of ways. People don't really get this until they've gone out and played, but it really mimics life in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, in our everyday life, we have a lot of different challenges that we're faced with, and we have to find ways of navigating and, and overcoming some of those, uh, in some cases, adversities. And, and golf is very similar um, in the sense that we go out in the golf course and you're challenged by uh, a variety of different obstacles, whether it be bunkers or water hazards or what have you. Um, so really, it, it, it they sort of work hand in hand. If you can kind of navigate yourself around the golf course uh, pretty good, then it can help you in, in, in your everyday life, and I think vice, vice versa as well. What do you think? I agree with that 100%, and I think that you really do learn how to overcome difficulties and that, you know, and that making the right decisions and, you know, knowing when to take a risk, when not to. And so I really think that that was really the principle so much of um, – you know, my own experience in the game and then working at first tee and just teaching the life lessons that we did in that program mm-hmm. uh, through the game of golf. And so that was really the crux of first tee. And uh, just to, you know, see that, you know, for myself and for, you know, the kids that we taught in that program and just the discovery that takes place, it, it really is a metaphor for life in so many ways. Right. And I think a lot of people, you know, once they sort of step into uh, the golfing world, and, and again, I'm not necessarily meaning the industry, but just in, in golf, stepping out on a golf course and what have you, um, realize it's more than just chasing a little white ball around the golf course for 18 holes. There's a lot more involved. It takes some thought, and, and uh, you know, it, you're never going to master it, as even some of the best players in the world will tell you. You're never going to master the game. You certainly can improve and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, handle challenges a little bit easier as time goes on. Uh, but you'll never truly master the game, um, and I think that's one, one of the appeals uh, is it's always challenging you. As uh, and and one day you might think you're going to, you know, lick this course, and the next day you go out and it beats you down. So there's always some adversity and always some some difficult challenges along the way. Uh, Ed, we've had uh, or I've had in the past uh, a number of folks uh, from the WGA and, and obviously uh, Elvin Scholars Foundation on the show. Uh, but for those uh, that maybe uh, didn't get the opportunity to listen to those particular broadcasts, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the establishment uh, of the Evan Scholars Foundation, how it sort of came about, uh, and what's the general overview of really what it does, what's its function? Sure. So, the um, well, Chick Evans was one of the great golfers in the in the teens and the 20s and, um, and sort of the Bobby Jones era, and so he... In 1930, he established uh, two, two young men who went to Northwestern as, who were caddies who couldn't afford to go there, and he started a scholarship fund for young caddies to go to school, and it started out, as I said, with those two, two young men. And 
And then it really, you know, blossomed over time, and he joined force with the Western Golf Association, and that was 93-some-odd years ago. And it was really, you know, really grew up a lot around the Chicagoland area and in the Midwest, and, you know, then just Mm -hmm. was – and then there was – you know, it just became this huge institution in all these areas. And then there was a few – you know, and then as Chick would, you know, did some barnstorming and other things, sort of established, you know, some things out in the West Coast and Colorado. and But, you know, really for – for a long time, it was, um, you know, really confined a lot to the Midwest, but, you know, it just kept continuing to grow and grow. It was just this incredible institution. And then, um, you know, over the past 20 or so years, um, it's really become a national program where there's mm-hmm. right now almost 1,100 young people that are, go to school on full scholarships, all youth caddies. And what really distinguishes it is more than just a scholarship, but each of these schools, um, all the scholars live in community where, whether it's a house or a portion of a dorm. And, um, you know, it's a really special thing where um, there's, a, there's a foundation in New York that was established here and has grown the Posse Foundation where there's um, the young people get to all live together and they have a, a group of friends that can rely on each other. And that's really in talking to, you know, some of the 12,000 now alumni of the program, just hearing that when they go to school and a lot of these kids are first generation, their parents didn't go to college, you know, and all of our kids have a certain level of financial need um, and mm-hmm. so without this scholarship, they, would ha- they might not be able to attend college or they might be able to go where their brother or sister wouldn't be able to afford it. So, um, you know, to, to see the, the families, the way they're transformed and the opportunity. And then, um, you know, like you were saying before, like what golf teaches you and, you know, just mm-hmm. the network and just the experience of being a youth caddy and being around, you know, if you're from a family that, you know, isn't from that environment, you know, to, to gain those connections and to learn from people who, you know, you might not otherwise encounter. So um, just the whole experience of being an Evans Scholar from the youth caddy, the experience, you know, during college, us providing these, you know, young men and women with an opportunity to get career advice and, um, you know, how to write a resume, um, you know, introduce them to alumni, fellow alumni and others that are at their clubs. So it's really a it's really a unique uh, program, and all these things lead mm-hmm. to what I think is a, a truly remarkable statistic in that, Ninety-five percent of our scholars graduate in four years, and I mean, wow. when you compare that statistic to any other scholarship um, or any other program, I mean, schools are you know touting the fact that they're graduating sixty-five, seventy percent of the kids in four years, and uh, right. the national average is well below fifty percent. So um, it really mm-hmm. speaks volumes to you know the the lessons you learn as a caddy, alluding to what you said earlier around the game of golf, and mm-hmm. then also how we provide the resource to these young people and the support system they have, you know, to graduation and beyond. So um, it's, uh, it's really an inspiring thing to be around. And, um, you know, it really drew me to uh, the organization from First Tee. And um, in the East here where, you know, 10 years ago there were, there were no Evan Scholars or maybe one or two. Maybe there was a kid in Cleveland or, or in, in Pittsburgh. But really up and down the East Coast, this is a new thing. And so we've gone from none to nearly 100 now over a 10-year period. And, um with the idea that we can get to 250 or 300 as part of our ambitions to 2030. So it's a, an exciting opportunity, and as you'll hear about it, it's something that, that everyone's really embracing. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to go back a little bit, uh, you know, I, I want people to understand that it, it's not just a matter of, of somebody sort of showing up and, and getting, uh, you know, access to the scholarship. Um, there's actually uh, a selection criteria. There's some things that, that they're looking for uh, in a young man or young woman 
to be able to go through and, and, and be a recipient of the Evan Scholars. Maybe you could just touch a little bit about that. What, what is it that's uh, some of the criteria that's, uh, that they're looking for? Sure. So there's sort of there's three kind of main things that the kids need to be able to do. And first is they need to have demonstrated financial need. And that means different mm-hmm. things in different places. But, you know, this means that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a really hard time, your family affording college. And a lot of our kids are in this area where they're, you know, they're not, they're not getting the full financial aid, but they certainly, their families aren't going to just be able to write a check for school. So, um, so it's a huge mm-hmm. benefit for them. So there needs to be demonstrated financial need. Uh, and the kids need to be great students. They need to have a 3.5 GPA or better in high school to be able to qualify for this. And so that's one of the things that we really focus on and uh, that as kids, you know, get into the program, they need to understand that that's really what a requirement is. And then, you know, caddying at least 100 rounds, the average one of our kids caddies 150 rounds throughout the course of their high school years. So, you know, you're talking three or four years, that's, that's it's pretty much their full-time job over the summertime. And then, you know, getting a recommendation from their caddy manager, from a member of the club, and then they need to get into these schools on their own, um, you know, our, our 22 now partner universities, and then from there they apply. And uh, really the the final, you know, the final step in the process is the, the kids, every single one of them has to go to an interview and talk about their experience and why they want the Chick Evans Scholarship. And it's it's really a special, a special day with these selection meetings all around the country where our directors at the clubs come together, students come and tell their story, and to hear the differences it's made in their lives. And, you know, you're talking about the obstacles so many of these kids have overcome, you know, in their, in right. their lives to be able to get to this moment. And, um, you know, that's really one of the real – I mean, that is the highlight of our year. And so in December, January, February, the kids are all applying now. They're getting into school, and then – you know, they get the call that they're going to get to interview, and uh, that's kind of the last step in the process. And uh, but hopefully by the time they get there, you know, we have a pretty good idea that those young men and women are going to be uh, successful in their application to uh, become Evan Scholars. Yeah, and, and before we move on to the to the uh, East Coast expansion, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. I just want to read out just for the the listeners tuning into the broadcast a little bit more, just so you uh, sort of get a full flavor of of what we're talking about. Um, just as an example, the full tuition and housing. Uh, college scholarship is valued um, at roughly about $120,000 over the four years, which, as you pointed out earlier, uh, Ed, is, is something that, you know, there are families out there that might struggle to be able to meet those financial needs. So obviously this is why uh, they have to be able to sort of demonstrate that. But, um, you know, that, that's a lot of money uh, for a family to put together. And uh, so obviously for the right to uh, applicants, they're able to, uh, you know, uh, through this program, being able to get access to a quality education and obviously um, be able to uh, continue on as, as a, you know, caddies and so forth. Um, the other thing uh, that I want to point, point out as well, excuse me, is the scholarship funds, uh, a lot of it comes through contributions from over 35,000 donors across the country, uh, including uh, many of the alumni, uh, and also uh, proceeds from the BMW Championship, which uh, happens every year as well. And uh, just to add to some of the stats that you gave a little bit earlier, uh, currently there's a record about 1,100 caddies that are enrolled in 21 universities across the nation as Evans Scholars, and to date more than 11,000, I think it's actually a little higher than that, uh, close to 12,000 caddies have gra- graduated as Evans Scholars. So it's very impressive records. That's a lot of uh, youngsters being able to go out there and get a good quality education or continue uh, their education uh, with some help, and obviously uh, getting access uh, through the caddy programs uh, that they've been involved with to get introduced to 
really what I think we would both agree is, is a great a game and a great opportunity uh, learning experience, not just at the collegiate level, but obviously uh, out in the golf course as well. So let's talk about the expansion. So as you mentioned, it was mainly kind of a, started out as a Midwest uh, sort of program through the WGA and, and whatnot, um, but now it's been expanded to the East Coast, which of course is a big market. Um, when did that first take place? And then let's talk about some of the specifics. When did that first sort of happen that it started to expand, and how did you become uh, involved in it? Sure. Well, I mean, there was there was a there was a, a number of factors that all sort of came together, and um, just looking back in that in the period of 2008, 2009, 2010, and that's really when we, you know, when um you know, and a big part of it was the B, you mentioned the BMW Championship, and you know, that used the old right. Western Open that was stayed in Chicago. And so that tournament started to make its way and, and move to different markets around the country. And what that allowed the organization to do is to really build its brand and awareness in different markets. And one of the first things um, it was when the BMW Championship came to Aronimink in Philadelphia, and so that helped to spark the creation of the Penn State House. And so that was our mm -hmm. first scholarship school in the East. And um, there was and a few of the people who were really instrumental in, in the building of this were um, were Mike Kaiser, the the um, from Band and Dunes fame, and uh, you know, in the Chicago native, and uh, and so he he really helped to spark this whole thing with a thing we called the Match Play Challenge, where it really supercharged the whole fundraising effort, and and my boss Bill Kingor, who created this this whole campaign and and this effort to have you know take these thirty five thousand donors and to go to them and say if we start to you know and ask them hey can you do a little bit more. You know, would you want to see this program go? Do you want to do you want to help more youth caddies? And so, the 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 amount of money we were able to raise, and therefore the number of kids we were able to help, it just became a multiple of what it had been. And so, that you know, going to a national program and going to these new markets, and so that was a huge step. So over the last ten years, the the growth of our organization and the number of kids that we've been able to serve, you know, new universities we've been establishing, and you know, and it really paved the way for us to in the east be able to you know, create a Penn State house a couple of years ago through the – and then partnering, bringing the championship together with the donors. And Hayes Valley um, Golf Club in, in Baltimore, they raised enough money for us to now establish a University of Maryland house. We have a Rutgers house that we're building in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all, all of this all of this support that we got in our alumni and everyone getting enthusiastic about what we're doing has allowed us to really, you know, expand, you know, both in the east and the west. But – you know, really having some, some great leadership around this to get it going is going to allow us to, you know, really spread the word. And, you know, with our communications team with Amy Fuller and everybody there, just really, like, making it known that Evan Scholars is something for any kid in America. If they have mm -hmm. the grades, they have the financial need, and you know, they have the caddy record, they can go to school and have a full scholarship, full tuition and housing scholarship. So, um, you know, all of these things have sort of come together, and you know, now it's my job to continue to, you know, bring more people into it, evangelize, get more clubs on board, and just let people know about it. And so uh, that's really been, you know, what's allowed us over the last 10 or 12 years to really um, program and, uh, you know, help more kids. Yeah, and, and we've talked, or rather I've talked to, you know, some of the recipients uh, of these Evan Scholars. Uh, in fact, this year uh, when they were on earlier, um, as well as representatives from the WGA. Um, but what was really interesting is, you know, their, not only their, their passion in, in doing what they're doing, um, but 
they understand the benefits that they've received through this program. So it's, it's not surprising to see the donors who have themselves been through uh, the Evans Scholars programs and, and have benefited over the years, and now, of course, they're alumni, um, very eagerly willing to give back and let the next generations, future generations, um, take advantage of the same opportunities that they did. Um, they, they obviously, and, and you know, as you were pointing out earlier, you know, currently there's, uh, I believe, 90 to 100 Evans Scholars, uh, and I'm talking about in your area, uh, from from nearly 50 golf and country clubs in the East Coast. That that's an incredible reach, is it not? No, we have, and and as you know, and and now that you start to hear people, and then a lot of what happens too is you have the alumni who might have get, you know, we have a, a great example of what you talked about and people giving back is our vice chairman Steve Colnitis. Um, he was, a, you know, grew up in Chicago, Indiana, Evan Scholar, and then moved to Baltimore, and so. Baltimore Country Club has been become one of our great our great clubs in the East and connected to um, you know connected to the University of Maryland now and just spreading the word to their friends and then and then and then also too I mean just the, the, the our scholars themselves I mean they they get to know they have their own network and and so Steve and our alums and so many others I mean they they see the differences made in their friends' lives and so mm-hmm. they say how how so our alumni give it over over fifty sixty percent which is again, unheard of in terms of alumni giving. And so, I mean, but then people and their friends and their networks recognize, my gosh, this, this program just made this incredible difference in my friend's life, and, and, that's, and that's enriched my life, and so how can I help? So um, our, our, our alumni are incredible at giving to themselves, but even more importantly, you know, helping to spread the word and wherever they go. And, um, you know, Frank Polizzi is another one in Philadelphia. So a lot of our growth mm-hmm. in the East has been, you know, there like been our our, don't, our alumni who have ended up in the East, having grown up in the Midwest, and then settling here and spreading the word and mm-hmm. being so generous with their time and um, and resources have a lot, have really been the spark of what's allowed us to do this. And over time, we're just going to get more and more alumni out here as the kids we're putting into school graduate and go on and have incredible jobs and uh, give back themselves. You know, and and as you mentioned, over the last several years, you know, the growth in the East, particularly now, has has really been unprecedented. I mean, you're seeing record levels of, of uh, excitement and momentum uh, around youth caddying. And what's really interesting is, you know, for a long time, and I'm going back quite a ways, I'm obviously dating myself, you know, caddying was, was sort of fizzling out a little bit. You didn't see as many of these, but it seems to have really come back. And, you know, I give both the WGA and obviously the Evan Scholars Foundation, um, uh, you know, a lot of credit for that. You guys have really stimulated a market that seemed for a while anyways um, sort of falling by the wayside. And what a great opportunity for some of these young kids to to really get access um, to a, an area that maybe they n- not not have had uh, access to, but being able to do something that's, that's very rewarding. And, I mean, what's interesting, too, is when we've talked to some of the recipients, uh, you know, about their caddying experiences, I mean, they love it. They love, you know, uh, caddying for the members and, and uh, it's a great experience, and I think uh, you know the the scholarship obviously is is a huge uh, icing on the cake. But the, just the actual caddying programs themselves uh, have been proven to be very very successful, and they really enjoy doing it. It gives them access and gives them a sense of of uh, accomplishing something, and gives them some structure in that. And you know, and, and as you know, being on the golf course, um, caddying is not an easy job. It's it's you know you're 
lugging those bags around and depending on the circumstances, but um, a lot goes into that job and you've got to be, uh, you know, you got to be on the ball. And I think a lot of the, the youngsters really enjoy that. So it, it's very understandable to see the excitement through many of the alumni that have gone through that themselves wanting to, again, expand that. Um, and I also see, and I want you to get a touch on this a little bit as well, is you guys are also partnering with other new groups as well from some of the local golf associations uh, to many new golf clubs and schools and community organizations. Talk a little bit about that. What are some of the other areas that you guys are expanding in as well? Sure, and this is a really important point. I mean, one of the things that we have in the East is we have great caddy culture and programs, but it's generally mm-hmm. speaking adults. Over the, over the years, the, the youth component right. has waned a bit. And so, uh, right. so what we're doing is, and so um, we have, um, you know, and for us, uh, really one of our models is Seminole Golf Club in Florida, where we have a director there uh, named John Hand, who's really devoted so much of his time and energy. He's such a wonderful man. And what he, a few, about, you know, eight or ten years ago, he said, you know, I want to get a few kids into this great adult caddy program at Seminole. And, you know, at first people weren't so sure about it. But what the, the approach we're taking, and there's a program that we've created over the last couple of years, we're calling it Caddy Scholar Prep, and it's a bit inspired by the seminal model that was created. And we're going out, and, you know, my background in first tee and working with schools, and this is what we did there is we would go and we'd, you know, no, no, no kid is just waking up on their own and saying, let me get a golf bag and carry it around for somebody for the next four right. and a half hours, right? It just it, right. It's not just something that you just <laughs> do by accident, Right. <laughs> And so right. <laughs> I think that, but once you once you go to the school and you talk to these kids and find groups where kids are getting a little exposure to golf, or you know, you know, you find, um, you know, a, you know, some of these schools where kids, you know, maybe a, a Catholic school or a private school where the kids are on scholarships, so they have the financial need, and they're and they're already kind of predisposed to, um, you know, caring about their education and having good grades, and mm-hmm. so you start mm-hmm. to bring this opportunity in front of these kids. And just you know, you what we call caddy scholar prep, where we'll 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 recruit these kids, we'll get them together, and say, you know, go to a you know, school gym or an auditorium, working with guidance counselors or nonprofit. And the, the 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 guidance counselors, once you explain it to them, first of all, they can't believe that you're there, telling them that these students can get a full scholarship to college because they're not aware of what the Evans scholarship is right. necessarily, right? A guidance counselor at a an inner city or a private school somewhere. And so we're going to find these kids that have financial need and. We're, we're bringing these kids, and then not all these kids are going to make it to the finish line, but we start them and we train the kids, and then all along we mentor them. And so what's great about the partnerships with the local groups who have been great, you know, there's the Westchester, Long Island, the Jaywood Platt, we met, New Jersey State Golf Association. You know, we also have these scholarship funds that give out partial scholarships and do such a great job in doing this and have such a longstanding tradition. So we can go to these schools and say, there's the Evans Scholarship over here, and that's a very specific opportunity for a subset of kids who meet A, B, C, D, and F. But for every kid, right. if they caddy, they're going to make money, they're going to get connections, and they may not want to go to one of our schools. They may want to go to mm-hmm. they may want to go to the community college, trade school, or Harvard or Yale. So for, there's something that we can offer everyone, but really at the crux of it is the caddy experience. And no matter where the kid goes mm-hmm. to school or what they do for the rest of their life. You know, they they had this this experience that is just really just you know enriches their life and allows them to just as a teenager just learn responsibility and how to work hard and you know, making real money and especially if you're a family that you know for a family's making fifty sixty seventy thousand dollars a year I mean I have kids that come back making ten twelve thousand dollars a summer caddying and that's making a real yep. economic difference in their family so um 
so us getting out there, we're getting very active, and, um, you know, here in the east and all over the country, um, and that's what our, our supporters and donors allow us to do is we're investing heavily in people that are expert in youth development, golf, um, all aspects of everything that you need to do. So our team in the East, there's myself, and, you know, I have the nonprofit first team background and, you know, working in school my, from a family of educators. And then we have mm-hmm. um, Jack Druga, who is the golf professional at Shinnecock Hills, who joined our staff almost a year ago. So he knows that whole world and helps to advise us and make connections with the golf professionals because especially out here, if, if the golf professional isn't on board, it's not going to happen. So we need to get right. that to, in place too. And then we have Brian Bianchi. He was the director of outside operations for almost 20 years at Baltusrol. So he ran one of the most complex, difficult caddy programs in the country and one of the top clubs in the world. And then just recently we added Alona Emmerth to our staff. She actually was a couple of years older than he played golf at Yale. And so um, she came from first team alumni relations at Yale where she was interacting a lot with the volunteer efforts of the alums in the major cities. So we feel like we put a really great team together. And then, you know, then once we were able to sort of um, – just deploy the resources in our staff and work with our directors. And so those are our representatives at the clubs, people like John Hand and others who, you know, they, they're the ones that are going to take that kid out on their first few loops when they don't know what they're doing <laughs> and, you know, and, and help them along right. and say, listen, kid, you know, you, you don't, don't stand right. over there, please. You know, and, and, and so you need right, those right. people. And, you know, we, and, and that, you know, that's a great experience for them. And, you know, just from, mm-hmm. you know, from some of the older folks that have time to, you know, the, the younger generation that, you know, they are looking to, you know, have a meaningful impact and do it in a way where they're already out there enjoying the day with their friends and everyone in between. So, um, you know, we found mm-hmm. that, um, you know, a few of these kids at their club that, um, you know, the people really embrace them and take great pride in having these young people. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a way for a private club to, you know, serve the community around them by giving these kids a job. And ultimately, you know, a lot of them, you know, once they, once they see what this is going, you know what, I'd love to, you know, give a few bucks to this thing and, help the kids out and, you know, and see more kids get this opportunity. So it's, uh, it's really just uh, creates a great atmosphere and, uh, you know, just opportunities and uh, it's a nice experience for everyone all around. Yeah, and you're so right in, in, in your analogy there, uh, Ed, is, you know, when the kids are exposed to, uh, with ultimately, you know, especially being somebody who loves the game, it is a great summer job for these young people. Uh, uh, you know, folks to, to be able to go out and do. And there's so many skills that they learn while they're out in the golf course, not just about caddying and that. But, you know, the other thing, too, which a lot of people overlook uh, when they hear this is certainly, and I can't speak for every single one, but I would imagine most, if not all, of the, the courses uh, certainly allow these younger uh, caddies uh, opportunity to get uh, a little better access to the golf course. They're able to go out. I mean, I know uh, from folks that have caddied in the past and in other circumstances, you know, usually they get certain access or certain privileges at the golf course, which is, again, um, they might not have had, um, you know, possibly before as easily. So, uh, again, there's a lot of things that come in. But more importantly, I think, too, is it really develops their uh, both their personal and professional uh, successes along the way. And, and as, I, I, you know, we touched on earlier, you know, from a personal standpoint, it really helps them to navigate in, in many areas through life. It helps to build and develop relationships I mean, where else can you spend, you know, four hours uh, with a group of folks uh, and learn about each other and, you know, have some fun and, and, and share, um, you know, later on in life? And then obviously making, as, as you get older and, and get beyond the caddying stage and now you're out there playing for your own self, um, you're developing professional contacts as well as friends. So it's really all the way around uh, 
going through these CADI programs and then obviously having the benefit of uh, the scholars, uh, uh, foundation programs, um, it, it's a win-win for everybody. So this is something that I know that you're getting some great feedback. So I want to touch on one more thing, um, and you're certainly welcome to respond to, to what I just said, but um, I want to talk about, you mentioned about the 2030 initiative and that, and really what you're trying to do. Um, any thoughts on what I just said, and then I, I want you to uh, talk about what your goals are and what your vision is for 2030. Sure. I, I think more than anything what I see, and we see this when, you know, you have eighth and ninth graders, and this is a, a difficult time in a young person's life trying to figure out who they are mm -hmm. and what they're going to become. And um, mm -hmm. and you just, when you when you go to these first trainings, and I've, I've been to a few of these, and um, this is really Brian Bianchi uh, who, who runs this for us and is such a great teacher, um, is the confidence level. The kids are looking down. They're not really sure what they're doing. And just the, right. the confidence um, that, that these young people gain of just, you know, doing a job well and, you know, being able to uh, be out there with people that are, you know, powerful, wealthy people at these clubs, right? And just, mm -hmm. you know, just sure. to be able to be toe-to-toe -to -toe with them and just to understand that, like, these are these are people that they can interact with and, you know, they do a good job. And, you know, and I think that you just learn how to, just navigate so many situations because you know, listen, not every, not, it's not always going to be a picnic out there, and people get in a bad mood when they're not playing good golf. And sure. so I think yeah. that as a as a youth caddy, you know, you really do learn that. So I think that just the confidence and just being able to, you know, be aware of what's going on around you and you know, and thinking on your feet. And I think that these are all just the kind of the, the things that you don't learn in the classroom. Um, and I think that that's really what caddying and just being around the game of golf does. And you know, just around people that are generally successful. And so I think yes. that all of that just, you know, allows you to see the good and the bad of what's out there. And um, you know, to your next mm -hmm. question on the, the 2030 ambition. So this is another thing that was really tied to the, uh, our most recent campaign that we're wrapping up now where, you know, we, you know, we, we went to our donors, we went to our friends and, um, you know, realized that all these great things we're doing, that people were willing to invest in the future of what we did. And, you know, that it's great that we were giving, scholarships to 900 or 1,000 kids, but um, we set a goal several years ago, um, and it really was what attracted me to, you know, take on the challenge of coming to work for Western Golf and the Scholars is, you know, to increase the number of kids you're serving by 50%. And it's a, it's a mm -hmm. you know, that's a big ask, especially, you know, in a right. market where, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, youth caddy, you know, in and of itself isn't booming, and you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, and then COVID hits and all these other things are happening. So I think that you know, it was a right. really, you know, and these ambitions were exactly that. You know, these are ambitions, and you sort of look at, you know, getting more kids but also being more diverse, you know, reaching out and finding kids who wouldn't otherwise know how to do this, investing in our academies, you know, getting these, like, incredible percentages of alumni giving and you know, increasing those even more. So it was, uh, you know, it's really something where every day, I mean, we're all, uh, you know, we have a staff now of about 80 people, and, we're all really focused on just working hard toward these ambitions. And, you know, John Kaskowski, our CEO, and our whole team, you know, all, all the way on down, I mean, we're just really using these as our North Star in terms of what's going to motivate us to do a better job and to just make sure that we can, you know, serve more, more students. And, you know, really just set this whole program up so that expenses on houses and Evan Scholar is going to be something that's going to be here forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's, you know, it, it's good to have, you have to have a vision and, and obviously ambition, as you put it, um, to be able to propel this. You don't want to sort of 
go with the status quo. I mean, obviously you have to move along as as uh, the funds and so forth permit. But again, I think what you guys are doing, um, uh, obviously now on the East Coast, but uh, generally started, uh, as you mentioned, in, in the Midwest, is you're really creating an opportunity to go to the youth, if you will, and say, here's an opportunity for you to do a couple of things, um, to not just you know work for the summer, but to learn something that's going to help you later on. I mean, think about this for a second. Just going back to what you mentioned, you know, that some of these kids are getting access to some extremely successful people. I mean, I'd be like, a, if I was, you know, uh, some of these youngsters, I'd be like a sponge when I'm out there carrying their, their golf bag. I mean, I'd be listening to all of the, you know, the business talk and things like that um, and learning as much as I can. I mean, what a great opportunity to, and again, you know, obviously you get some cranky ones out there if they're not playing well, but, you know, that isn't as, as often, but, um, you know, what a great opportunity for these young uh, folks to be able to get access to that kind of knowledge. I mean, these are people that have come before them that have, uh, you know, uh, in some cases amassed, you know, uh, a very successful livelihood and um, is a great opportunity for the, for these kids to learn. Um, you know, uh, and I'm sure many of the people that they're catting for are very willing and able. I mean, certainly you're not going to get into a huge dialogue, but um, are, are willing to certainly share and impart some of that knowledge. So, I mean, what a great opportunity for these kids. And I think it's great that you guys, uh, um, I think it's a great program all the way around, but it's great that you guys are being ambitious uh, as you move forward in the years. And, and unfortunately, as you pointed out, you know, COVID's kind of put a stymie a little bit, but it sounds to me um, that the uh, alumni and other organizations that you're partnering with are very eager to, uh, propel that uh, as you move forward into uh, the next years ahead, um, and I think it's fantastic. Any final thoughts? Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, share any final thoughts that, that uh, maybe we, we've missed or, or you want to emphasize again, and then I'd like for you to uh, sort of lay out the best way for not only the kids that might be tuning in, but particularly parents that maybe have a child that's uh, either in a, a caddy program or would like to introduce them to that What's the best way for them to reach out to you guys and get more information? So any final thoughts on things that you maybe want to uh, touch on uh, about overall about uh, the Evan Scholars and WGA uh, and then uh, share with, with the folks uh, the best way that they can reach out and contact? Sure. Well, well first, again, thank you so much for having me on, on the show. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just great to be able to share what's really, you know, my passion and all, all of us at, at Western Golf, uh, Evan Scholars. And, you know, one of our ambitions is that we wanted to, you know, double the, the the number of caddy opportunities and, you know, diversify those opportunities. So, we, you know, to us, every – it's the best summer job that any kid can have, no matter what their background. And so we really want to just encourage more kids to come out there and, you know, contact your local golf courses, visit our website, and we have a caddy locator where you can put wherever you live with the contact information for different clubs. And so – I mean, there's you know thousands and thousands of clubs all over the country, and uh, going on that that can help you to understand where to go. And you know, I think that for in, in terms of how to help, obviously, you know, the more resources we have, the more that we can do, and the more kids we can help. So you know, there's if people are looking for something they want to get involved in charitably, or you know, have like a you know philanthropic um, you know sort of uh, inclination, um, you know, we need to you know continue to raise funds to pay for the scholarships. Um, you know, every mm -hmm. year we invest over $25 million in kids' education and direct funding. So that's something mm -hmm. that, um, you know, as you look at the Big Ten schools and the others we're expanding to, 
um, you know, anybody can, you know, be a part of that and endow scholarships and allow us to grow. And so, um, and as far as, you know, what we want to do in the future, we just want to just let more kids know about this opportunity, know about what youth caddying can be, and that um, there's all sorts of opportunities um, through through these scholarships. But like you said, um, just cad- youth caddying in and of itself is an incredible job. And, you know, you, you get out there and you see these people who are so successful and you say, you know, mm-hmm. when you're out there, you're able to see yourself in them and understand that this is not something that is, you know, completely unattainable. And, you know, and that, uh, mm-hmm. the one thing that our scholarship is is that we, you know, we do all sorts of things to help give kids that can't get to the golf course. We have our summer academies. You know, we, we try and figure out with schools how can we provide some transportation if the kid can't get there and all those other things. But right. at the end of the day, the Evans Scholarship, every single one of our students earned that opportunity. And and I think that um, that for us to be able to do that, that's something that is just, like, at the core of our mission will never change. And I think it's one of these things that, you know, the, 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 the key word that I always think about with Evan Scholars is opportunity. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just in, in, the, in the times we live in where, you know, people can't seem to disagree on much, you know, giving a young person who's willing to work hard and, you know, really mm-hmm. go for it to give that young person an opportunity to better their life. I mean, it's just something so universal and pure, and that's really what we want to accomplish with our scholarship. And, um, you know, we're not – our scholarship isn't for every kid, but for those kids who are willing right. to, you know, recognize the opportunity and go for it and, you know, are willing to put in the work themselves, they're going to get, they're going to get that back 100 times from us and our alumni and all the people. And those people they caddy for, like – I mean, I, I've heard hundreds of stories about the kid who caddied at a club and they had the member, and then that's – who they've worked for their whole career or gave them that right. interview that they got mm-hmm. because I mean that that's all you can do you can get the get that young person to that to that point where it's now up to them and you know that's what youth caddying teaches you that every time you're out there if, if you don't perform um, there's nowhere to run there's nowhere to hide and um, that's a lot <laughs> of what back to you said in the beginning that's the life lessons you learn and something that you know we know that every one of our scholars is going to take with them and why you know they're so successful in life and why our program continues to thrive. Yeah, and it's not just a, a great uh, summer job, but talk about the ultimate networking opportunity as a as a caddy exactly. out there. And, and like as you said, I mean, really, where else do you get access to, um, you know, a, a lot of folks out there that even if they personally are not uh, in a position to do anything, um, just as you pointed out earlier as well, you know, they know somebody or they can put you in touch with somebody um, or they may talk to somebody about you and say, hey, you know what, maybe that's uh, somebody that I want to reach out to at a later point. And doors can open. It's amazing. So I think, it's again, it's a win-win not only for the organization and the Evans Scholars Foundation itself, uh, but for the recipient. And as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we've had a number of them over the years uh, on this program, including this year, and you can tell that they're very, very appreciative and very excited uh, about their futures, and that's something that you know. What what parent wouldn't want to to have their child uh, come home and express that and say, you know, you know, that they're excited about uh, their future opportunities, and at the same time, as you said, they're making some money and and learning uh, a little bit about life and and uh, some of the challenges that we face uh, every day. And um, I think it's a win win. So, uh, website that they can go to is there a website that they can go to if if people want to get more information. Yes, it's the Western Golf Association website. It's wjesf.org, and um, and then so you know you can and on that website there's all sorts of different resources. There's 
patty videos. There's all sorts of you know different things that young people and their families can look at. And you know, really, that's one of the things that we um, are able to do is to provide you know like the resources to learn where you can find a caddy opportunity and just really you know look at what it means to be a youth caddy. But um, you know, I really want to encourage kids to just come out there and give it a try. And again, it's not going to be for everybody, but um, for those people that where they where they do take a liking to it, and it can be really the opportunity of a lifetime. So WGAESF.org is our website, and uh, there's lots on there to look at. And, um, and uh, you know, we hope that more and more kids will come out, and uh, we're going to be out there and, uh, you know, in the market, you know, recruiting, training, and mentoring through the Caddy Scholar Prep. And, uh, you know, I think that we're really excited about what the future holds for us and for all the kids that we're going to be able to serve in the future. I couldn't agree more. And on that note, we're going to wrap up. Ed, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, uh, you know, an expanded version, if you will, of the WGA and Evan Scholars Foundation uh, platform. I think it's a great, uh, uh, a great opportunity for a lot of youngsters out there. And again, uh, they need to go to the website, obviously, to get more information. But I appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, this time. And I hope you come back and join me again. Thank you so much for having me. Have a nice evening. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right, that was Ed Brockner, the Vice President of the East Region Development of the WGA and Evan Scholars Foundation. Um, uh, again, uh, sharing uh, not only the CADI program, but also the scholarship uh, opportunities that uh, are available to uh, uh, youngsters out there. Again, you can go to their website to get more information, but uh, uh, definitely a very interesting uh, uh, conversation, and I certainly enjoy uh, and appreciate what they're doing to, uh, to not only, uh, it's not just a matter of growing the game, but it's really giving back um, you know, to the uh, uh, young uh, youth, if you will, uh, of uh, this nation, and I think it's uh, something that we need to to do is to is to to get them while they're young and get them, um, you know, a, a good uh, access to a good education. And it's really available for anybody that really wants to put the effort in and wants to uh, make something for themselves. Uh, they have a lot of opportunities available, and uh, a lot of uh, alumni, obviously, that are willing to. Uh, uh, to pay and assist uh, through these programs. So uh, definitely want to check them out. Also, special thanks again to my two buddies, John Hughes and Clint Wright. Thanks, guys, for doing a great job on Coach's Corner. And on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in to Golf Talk Live. I hope you enjoy the show. I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 